So picking up with Jesus' arrest in John 18, you will recall last week that the cohort of Roman soldiers who had come with the Jewish officials, who'd come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, when they asked him, when he asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am, that biblical statement of God. They fell on their they fell to the ground, literally like we said, bowling pins falling down when the bowling ball hits them. And now they have reassembled themselves at this point where we are in John 18. They have mustered up the courage, and the head of the officials uh, from the Roman legion cohort there, they've tied up Jesus, and they're getting ready to escort him to a man named Ananias. You would say he would be the high priest emeritus of Israel. Not only had he served as high priest as recently as 15 AD, this, if you say this is 33 AD, but now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest. In fact, when Ananias first became the high priest, the practice of the day was that you would be the high priest until you died, kind of like almost a Supreme Court justice, if you will. But um, at some point, the Romans decided they could get more money out of the Jews if they just said who would pay the most to be the high priest of the year. So he lost his position in 15, but his influence spread through his son-in-law and his five sons. Five of his sons would be high priests of Israel. So this definitely was the high priest emeritus of the land. Alfred Eidersheim, that's hard for me to say, it may be Eldersheim. He is a Jewish uh, convert to Christianity who was a theologian and historian in the 1800s. Wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus. He writes of Ananias this. There is no figure better known in contemporary Jewish history than that of Ananias or Annas. No person deemed more fortunate or successful but none also more generally loathed than the late high priest. Today we will read the interrogation of Jesus with this high priest, Emeritus, Annas, and we will deal with the three denials of Jesus next week. Excuse me, three denials of Judas next week. Not Judas, Peter. He'll come out there yet. If you keep listening, he will get the right words occasionally. Because it's... The way it's divided, you'll see the first denial of Peter and then another little context. And what happened, how I even got this title, Dan and I were talking about it because I read verse 24. And I'm like, Dan, have you ever read that? And Dan and I are both like, well, yeah, I think, but it was confusing. And if it's confusing to me, I know I'm not as smart as 99% of you in here, maybe 100% of you. Uh, but if it confused me, it may confuse you. So hopefully we can deal with some of that as we look at this. And by taking just the interrogation and then dealing with the denial next week, maybe we can find some uh, clarity. So if you have your Bibles, and if I haven't confused you enough, it's not Jesus denying himself or, or Judas. It's, it will be Peter. But right now it's Jesus taking to Annas. Verse 12, chapter 18. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. That is some amazing foreshadowing and prophecy, even in the most difficult of ways for it to happen. Now, skipping down to verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So where I'm getting confused, if I was reading this, and hopefully if you haven't read this in a while, maybe you'll see the confusion. They first take him to Ananias, or Annas, and then they call that they're taking him to the high priest. So is he going to Annas or is he going to Caiaphas? But this conversation is between he, Jesus, and Annas. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues of the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. Once again, they're referring to high priest. So, you know, you're first reading through. I think that's Caiaphas. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? And here's the verse that got me. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So it seems to be that there is a mutual term of high priest for both of those men. Thus, the reason we talked about high priest emeritus or emeritus high priest. He's, he's got the title even though he wasn't in the position. There are some commentators who will say that both men were present at this questioning. If you're familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they will have a little bit different points, and I will talk to you about some of that in a bit, probably going off of Mark 14, which is the most succinct of those. But bear with me as we think about this idea of emeritus, and let us pray. Father, as we look at this term, emeritus, and what it means to us as in our society, how we might be able to pull something from this inquisition, if you will, of Jesus by whether it be one or two men, definitely the one man, Annas, had, had it in for Jesus. He despised him. And his son-in-law had even suggested that let one man die for the people. So through your divine direction, your son would be placed into the hands of those who would be blind to who he was. And they would reject him. But yet, even through his death, your power is present, for he overcame the grave. And we today gather worshiping the risen Savior. Speak to us today, Lord, in a fresh way. And help us to see what we might change in our own lives as we look at this text today. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Emeritus, that's the title today. In Latin, and I didn't take Latin. I'm looking, is Lou here? Yeah. Oh, Jack, I could, could put you on the spot. I know he takes Latin. And uh, I took French in high school, did poorly in that. I took Greek in, in seminary and in Hebrew and did poorly in those. So I'm just really a, a poor language person. In fact, I speak lang uh, English pretty poorly on most Sundays. Those of you can attest to that. But Latin, the word emeritus, was used to describe soldiers who had completed their tour of duty. Soldiers who had served and now were 
if you will, retired, that's the word that emeritus comes from. There you go, the water again. That's three Sundays in a row. I will stop bringing the water when we have our next baptism. <laughs> Somebody out there needs to be uh, sharing more of the good news. Um, the, the etymology of that word comes from dividing a word which means merit or deserve or earn and the first part of, well, here you have it. There you go. To the E part is, is a Greek or Latin, which means out. That's why you get the word exit. That's where that exit is a preposition in Greek. Out of service, out of earning, out of merit, if you will. So we use that term, and it became more popular in the English language in the 1700s as I researched. That's the first time they started using it for someone other than soldiers who have been you know, we would call them now vets or veterans or I served. But now they use this word emeritus as someone who has had a position of honor, a position perhaps professional, perhaps uh, collegiate level. And, and we all know that, right? I mean, pastors, university professors, um, different professions, uh, even our president maintain this emeritus status. Now, as we think about that, uh, think about the Pope. Who was it? Which Pope was it? Can you name the Pope before Francis? Benedict. Very good. And he was Benedict. Now, if you know the number, you're really good. Yeah, thank you. I know you would. <laughs> yeah. Benedict in uh, 2012 basically stepped down because of his health. And he held the title of Pope Emeritus until he died in 2022, almost 10 years. I think maybe he stepped down in 2013. It was almost 10 years. And as I said, in our own national system, when someone is the president and they're no longer in office, they are still called by the title president. So I'm thinking a lot about professors that have the title pastors that have had the title, other professions, the Pope and the President. And then I got to thinking about when the behavior of the person who has the title emeritus is in conflict with the honorary title bestowed upon them, what do you do? Well, I read this week that multiple universities have policies in place how they can revoke the title emeritus. So when their actions bring disgrace to the title, now you have a picture of Annas. He had, and I, I will use this as my first point, his emeritus sin, emeritus sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, emeritus was, or uh, Annas was born into a wealthy home. He had money, he had education, he had everything going for him. He be, had been the high priest and thought he would have it till the end of his life. But as we read, that one historian wrote that he was known for his treachery. He, knew, he was known for taking from the people. Even though he no longer was formally in the leadership position, Annas continued to command the power of the office, even exerting it upon his son-in-law. Given his position, we can understand while he was out to get Jesus. Questioning him was totally out of keeping 
with the Jewish legal system of the day. In fact, he was making a mockery of justice. The accused in Jesus' day in Jewish trials were not asked questions. Like if you were accused of something, you know, did you rob that bank? Did you, you know, kill that man? You weren't asked that. The witnesses were asked the question. And upon their testimony, you would be found guilty or innocent. Thus Jesus saying, ask anybody else. I was in the temple openly teaching. What did I say that was bad? What did I say that was wrong? Ask others. Have them give testimony. But behind the interrogation, I think, is the anger that Annas had for Jesus. And to understand that, you have to go back to John, the second chapter, verses 12 through 24. And as I look back at that, I remember, <laughs> we've been in John so long, Pierce preached that passage. And I thought, well, I don't remember all my illustrations that I used on that particular one. Well, that's because Pierce preached that passage. And that's when Jesus came to the temple and saw the money changers there. And what did he do? Did he sit down and start selling his own stuff? He trashed it. You're exactly right. He turned the tables over. He got a whip, if you will, and started, I, I can imagine like a, a whip that you would have, you know, in a Western, popping people and saying, don't do this to my father's house. So, well, how does that tie in with Annas? Well, in that same book, The Life and Times of Jesus, in his uh, journey, we, we read, I, I introduced you to that little story. He references, that historian references the Talmud. If you're familiar with the Talmud at all, the Talmud is a collection of Jewish teachings, rabbis of the day. It is not considered Torah, law, but it is used for teaching and for uh, reverence. And in it, this is written. Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their son-in-laws are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat people with sticks. It goes on to make reference of the four booths that the sons of Annas had in the temple. And there they exchange currency. You know, you brought your currency in. I don't know, let's say the states had different currency and we all have to go to D.C. to do some, pay some temple tax. I bring my Illinois dollars in and I need to trade them for D.C. currency. And that's what they did. And of course, their conversion rate was always to their benefit. They also took advantage of the poor. When the poor showed up not having some animal to sacrifice, not having brought one with them, they would sell animals to the poor for sacrifice sacrifices to be done in the temple at a greatly, you know, raised price. So now they're taking advantage that way. So the bottom line is always the bottom line. It's money. Annas had it in for Jesus because they had hit him in his pocketbook. I don't think he'd listened to his words that he, at all. He was just looking for a way to kill him, all because of greed. The loving face of the Savior is slapped for speaking the truth. All because of money, the healing hands of the Savior would be bound behind his back and finally pierced by nails. All because of the influence of sin, the world would reject the one sent for them. What emeritus sin do you have that you're carrying 
in your heart. Think about that. And as you think about it, let me tell you that years ago, I went to Village Parkway. My first assignment here, I went to a seminar at Village Parkway, which is down on Claver, right? And uh, John Maxwell, the guru on leadership, was speaking, and I got a free ticket to go, so I attended, and there I heard John Maxwell promote his favorite thing, everything rises and falls on leadership. And a few years later, I thought I was really smart, and I would polish what Maxwell said. I said, everything rises and falls on relationships, because I think both are true. But given the fact of the influence of social media and how, we talked about this this week, some of those who've been around me, how whatever you're doing online, some way it listens to you and it influences you. Something I said last week as we were picking up wood out there, last week I told Dan, you're moving kind of slow like Uncle Joe at Petticoat Junction. (laughs) On my Facebook feed that Sunday morning, that was last Saturday, last Sunday morning, is a profile on the man who played Uncle Joe on Petticoat Junction. So, of course, I read it because it was entertaining. He was a dentist, and I had to read all about that. You know, he kept his license even while he was an actor, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no doubt those things that we carry in our pockets or our purses or on top of our desk influence us. So it's only logical for me to think that leadership in its purest form is influence. So what emeritus sin influences your life today? What has influence over you? God's word or the words of Facebook and Twitter and whatever else you know you use on social media? And I'm not always talking bad about it, but there is this thing, and Wesley would say all things in moderation. I would say all things in half a moderation when it comes to our electronic media. What influences you, God's forgiveness or the memories of your addictions that he has already redeemed you from, that you just can't let go of? What influences you, God's great commission or getting ahead in this world? Not sure where you were in 1978. Oh, I know most of you, I wasn't even born. Ed and I got eye contact, I know you were, yeah. 1978, I know exactly where I was, and Ty Burr is a writer, a columnist, and an author who was in college the same time I was in college, but I was at Southern Illinois University, and you know, he was at Dartmouth. I mean, sounds a little different, a little better, maybe at Dartmouth, but uh, I'm sure I was just as good a student as he was, not. Uh, but he wrote an article last month in the Washington Post And his title was, I was on campus when Animal House debuted. It changed everything, end quote. So when I saw that, I remember Animal House. You know, I loved John Belushi, and and I I loved that movie, and I know it's pretty raunchy, and all of you go, well, that explains so much of you, Cliff. (laughs) But what Ty says, he said, the night that I saw that, I watched afterwards the students at my university and how it changed them. It was as if the uprightness, the the prudes, if you will, that are made fun of in Animal House, now the students had the authorization, if you will, to turn the world upside down. It was as if class had been replaced by crass. And I think about that in our own political structure. 
I would go back to those of you who are old enough to remember, wasn't Bill Clinton asked one time what type of underwear he wore? Briefs or boxers in a public setting. Yeah, young people, what? <laughs> Once again, the world upside down. No one of your generation, Ed, would have ever thought of asking that publicly of the president. You probably wouldn't ask it if he was your best bud. You know, that was just things you didn't talk about. And what Ty says is that a movie promoting counterculture through comedy has turned our world into the world that it is that lives under this emeritus sin. It, it lives underneath a sin that has happened and continues to permeate throughout the land. From our politics to our personal behaviors, it's like the compass needle is spinning out of control. We have lost the true focus, the true heading to follow Jesus. The power of emeritus sin must be revoked, and only the power of emeritus grace can do it. Look back with me, please, at John 11, verse 49. Basically, I'm trying to give you the setting for what Caiaphas has said. They've been talking about Jesus, the plot to kill Jesus. It begins in verse 45, but I'm going to go at verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but for all those scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Annas knew his son, son-in-law's prophecy. There's no doubt about that. Still, he questions Jesus. And if you look with me at verses 20 and 23, 20 through 23, just to read, familiarize. Annas says to Jesus, he's been asking what he's doing. And Jesus says, I have spoken openly in the world or to the world. I have taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together, and I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. He's, he's basically telling, I know the Jewish law. Ask witnesses. Why question me? Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. The Greek word is slap. It's a slap. You ever, any of you men ever been slapped in the face? Usually starts a fight, doesn't it? Yeah. I'll try it as you go out today. I'll just slap everybody. <laughs> just the hand of Jesus, yeah. But Jesus does not retaliate. Now, granted, his hands are tied. There's that water ball again. Let's just leave it down there, and I'll try to kick it over. He does not retaliate. Now, he, we said last week he could have sent... Uh, legions of angels to, to take him out of those bonds, but he didn't. And Jesus says, if I said something wrong, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Well, we, fat, we ourselves, I think, slap the face of Jesus when we ignore what he's done for us and who he is. Uh, last week, I talked about the Malchus moment. This is that uh, high priest servant who had his ear reattached and, and healed. And what a testimony he was 
to Annas and Caiaphas, undoubtedly coming back with bloodied clothes and an ear that was perfect as it had been before Peter struck it. So I started digging this week, trying to find out in church history or tradition, the name of the one who slapped Jesus. Many refer to the wandering Jew tradition coming from that. It doesn't matter whose name it was or what his name was. But then, of course, the curiosity to me, I'm wondering, did his hand wither? I mean, remember Jesus had healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Or, or like I was telling the guys in my office earlier, have you ever slapped something so hard that when you got done slapping it, your hand hurt? I mean, it put a sting, a burn in your hand. You're like, whoa, I wish I hadn't hit quite that hard. Could it be that that man's hand burned like that the rest of his life? I don't know. Once again, he struck the face of Jesus. Maybe Jesus it was like hitting a, a soft pillow in the sense that Jesus wasn't about to hurt one of his own or one that might potentially believe. So I'm struggling all week trying to find an illustration because I can't stand at the back of the church. Well, I could. I, it probably wouldn't last but about two or three men slapping them before you guys would carry me out of here on a you know, rail or whatever. You, you, you can't get the illustration or understanding of this face slap until I found this one. And it happened in 2014 in my home state of Illinois in Chicago. A man named David Nicosia, about 50 some odd years old, about 240 pounds, so he's a little bigger boy than I am. If I keep eating at these uh, Wednesday night refuels, I may get up there with him. But he is outside the Cook County Courthouse getting ready to buy his wedding license to his longtime love. And there, standing near a trash can, is a and he's white, is a little African-American lady of about 79 years old, weighing in at about 110 pounds. She's smoking a cigarette. He didn't like the fact, as he's waiting on the bench, for, I guess for his girlfriend or whoever was coming for him to get the license for, and he told her to move. She didn't. She said, well, I can't smoke inside, and this is where I typically take my smoke break, and I'll, you know, make sure that's out before I put it in the trash can. Well, with that, he called her Rosa Parks. He said, you need to move, and those of you who know your history know who Rosa Parks was. If not, write it down, look it up. Then he spit on her, because if you look at Matthew 14, they spit on Jesus, they blindfolded him, and then they started beating on him and said, okay, prophet, who hit you? You can imagine men doing that, can't you? I mean, who hit you? Making fun of him. He spit on her, then he slapped her. 79-year-old lady for smoking a cigarette. Sadly, he did not know her name was Judge Arnett Hubbard. <laughs> the first female president of the National Bar Association and of Cook County Bar Association. And, as I looked her up this week, a fellow alum of Southern Illinois University. A little ahead of me, but I thought, well, at least there's somebody who did well in their life, yeah. <laughs> he was arrested by sheriff's deputies and charged with four counts of aggravated battery and a hate crime. The Chicago Tribu Tribune wrote up this. It said, people of all good common sense and decency, people of all good hearts should be outraged by this. After all, nobody should go slapping and spitting on a community icon. I don't think they should go slapping and spitting on anybody. And I wonder if he would have done that had he known she was a judge. 
Now some of you say, oh yeah, he probably just didn't like her skin color or she didn't, he didn't like smokers. I doubt it. If, he, if any of the neurons were firing in the brain, he probably said, not a good thing to slap a judge outside of a courthouse in Chicago. In John 18, verse 22, we find that the entire human race slapped and spit on someone whose true dignity was also hidden. It was an outrage, and yet the eternal Son of God didn't arrest us. He set us free. Emeritus grace begins when you realize who you have slapped and spit upon, and you allow the emeritus sin to reign over your life and let it be washed away by his grace. Caiaphas asks an incriminating question to Jesus, if you read any of the other accounts. Are you the Messiah? The better question is, how do you answer that? Is Jesus the Messiah? That song we just sang, I think your last song you sang was perfect, and I know you know that, so thank you for choosing that. Who do you say he is? Because if you believe him to be the Messiah, your life needs to be different. Stand with me, please, we pray. Father, as we have looked at this text today, found men who were looking more at the bottom line than at the Savior of the world standing in front of them. Men who wanted to kill versus be healed. Men who wanted to hate versus be loved. How many times have we let that emeritus sin, something we've done in the past, dominate us even today? I pray that your emeritus grace would be ever-present in this moment. And if there's one today, Lord, who's never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, let them step forward. We'll, we'll talk. We'll pray together right here in front of this uh, sanctuary and say, Lord, come into that person's heart. Perhaps there's somebody else that just wants to come to these steps, Lord, and pray. Whatever decision, we ask your Holy Spirit to move and move now. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.